Hi, welcome back to Science with Dr. Carl in a special Dating Week edition. This week on Triple J, we were chatting all things dating, love, sex, relationships, affection. So alongside your regular science questions, Dr. Carl also took on ones like, will dating change due to overpopulation? What's the deal with pheromones? And have you ever heard of a brain orgasm? Ooh, also, wait for Dr. Carl's advice on one of his ways to get over a breakup. I'm Lucy Smith. Let's get into it. Now, Dr. Carl, it's Dating Week this week on Triple J, and I have to say, you and your wife, Mary, are couple goals, so to speak. Have you ever heard that term, couple goals? No. Educate me. Tell me more. So basically, I look at you and Mary, and I think, you know, I want that, because she makes you the most beautiful shirts, all your crazy, wacky, colourful shirts she makes for you, and uh, you get to parade them around and always give her credit. I remember once you were wearing, you were debuting the shirt, you're wearing today actually your octopus shirt it's pink and you said it's a new one from mary she made it just for you and uh, you actually were featured on the abc this week and mary got to show how she puts all your shirts together well i am very lucky that way and it was amazing when i first met her so i went to university medical school and there were 250 students in my class in year one roughly half male half female and she just shone like a supernova um and there was just something about her that was different and i didn't know that we'd end up meeting each other uh and going further down the line and mary then told me a story that she had said to her mother and she said oh I've just started first year medicine, Mum. Yeah, you knew that. And in the chemistry lecture, everybody was throwing darts, you know, paper darts down the front because they think that was funny. And this guy with very long skinny legs and no bum stood up and asked everybody politely not to do it. And her mother said, you're going to marry that man. <gasps> and and I finally did. And um, seeing as how we're in relationship, here comes my wedding proposal. So my wedding proposal went like this. Hi, honey. I'm in a cheap hotel room in Southeast Asia injecting opiates into a young red-headed woman. Now, I've forgotten where I should inject. I, I'm, I, I know I shouldn't do it in the buttocks, but why, why not? And where should I do it? And I've been doing it anyway. Uh, and will you marry me? And then the line went dead. That was my wedding proposal oh after gosh. we had three kids. Oh. <laughs> so did you ever get to do it properly? Uh, well, we then got eventually married. She was saying, well, why are you doing this? Why, why are you um, doing this medical care on somebody? And, and why are you injecting opiates into this young red-headed woman? I said, well, there's something very sick with her and I don't know what it is. I just know enough medicine to know it's really bad. So I'm trying desperately to get to, to a hospital where we've got an MRI and we were in the Himalayas and we were three days away. And so we just had to keep on going. And I could buy opiates seven times more powerful than morphine over the counter for 30 cents each and I was injecting them into her, which is really dangerous, but on the other hand, her pain was so bad and I was desperately trying to get her to the hospital. And um, so the way I was monitoring her condition was if she didn't go unconscious. (laughs) So because it was all I could get hold of and so I just kept her pain-free until we finally got to the hospital and then we end up finding that it was um, something to do with the spine, a subdural abscess, but on the spine and we have no idea how it happened. And as it turned out, no, an epidural abscess, abscess, and as it turned out, um, that part of the world, India, has some of the best hospitals in the world for treating it. 
Wow. I was such an event. And, and I went for about five days without sleep, six days. Like the, when we turned up at the hospital, it was just terrible because um, there was no electricity at the hospital because it was the end of the day. So but we ended up getting married. And the way we got married <laughs> was um, we, 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 we tried desperately to get married in Norway because I wanted to have a scientific wedding. What's a scientific wedding? A scientific wedding is when you get married on the longest day of the year to celebrate the fact that in the same way, and you do it inside the Arctic or the Antarctic Circle, so to celebrate the fact that the sun does not set on that day, the love would never set on our marriage. And, and, and my daughter Lola, who was eight at the time, was saying, Daddy, you're being crazy. The sun has to set at midnight. And I said, no, it doesn't. Come and have a look. And she finally believed it. But we had to do it in Norway. We had all this trouble with trying to get our relationship, you know, our, our marriage happening in Norway. And they were having troubles. Well, I love that you proposed in the midst of a... An entire medical emergency that you wanted to have a scientific wedding and now you and Mary are together living a happy life and she makes you fantastic shirts. And I hope that I can be a good dishwasher, loader and emptier to make up the fact that she does most of the cooking. (laughs) You can check out that episode featuring Mary and Dr Carl's fabulous shirt collection on ABC iView. But Dr Carl, should we get into some questions? The audience is what we're here for. Let's do it. We're going to start with Ailish from Melbourne. Ailish, what's your question? Hello. Um, my boyfriend had an ACL and meniscus injury when he was about 16. Um, he's 21 now, so it was a little while ago. Um, and what they did is they took some of his hamstring to rebuild his knee. But ever since then, he hasn't had uh, a lot of feeling in some part of his leg. Um, but occasionally he gets like massive spasms all through his leg. And it happens more often at night, especially when he's really tired. I was just wondering why that happens because it's annoying. <laughs> mm. And is the loss of sensation on the upper outer thigh? Oh, sorry, the yeah. middle outer thigh? Um, oh, that's a good question. Now I can't think. <laughs> He's at work, so I can't go after him. <laughs> but it's I definitely like on the, I think it's on the outside of his leg. Yeah. Um, um, while evolution did a good job with the hip joint, which is a ball and socket, and is inherently strong, the knee joint is kind of like a pair of soup bowls, very shallow, sliding over each other and held together by gaffer tape on the outside, the inside, the front and the back and all over the place and separating the two soup bowls, you know, like the ball and the socket, the very shallow ball and the very shallow socket, separating them is what you would hope would be like a round washer and evolution didn't give us a washer uh, you know, a, a fibrous washer in the shape of the letter O, it's in the shape of the letter C. And so you get any load on it and it forces it open. It's the worst design I could have come up with. And the way to do that is to go back to the GP and then get referred down two pathways. And one is to see the orthopaedic people who did the work and the other one is to go with the physio. And those physios, they know stuff that you and I don't know. And in some cases that the orthopods don't know, although a good orthopod will keep in touch with their physio and they'll both learn a lot. So I'd definitely recommend going down that pathway and you might be able to do something. Is there any particular reason why it's happening at night, though? Is it just because there's a lack of activity happening in the body? Well, you'd have to look at the muscles and see if the muscles on one side are wasted compared to the other. So when I had my surfing accident and the surfboard broke the ball of my shoulder joint into 40 parts, um, my left arm 
was when I came out of uh, the, the cast was so weak I couldn't lift my left hand up by, my, by itself. I actually had to use my right hand to lift it up and I've been doing asymmetrical exercises and got back to normal. But then I had to go through a bunch of physios until I found one who said, oh, yeah, I've seen this before and this is what I did and it worked out okay. And so you might have to go through a few people but I think there's light at the end of the tunnel. Ailish, thank right. you so much. You, You're going to have to ask the, the boy where the pain is coming from. But we've got Graeme here from Victoria. Graeme, you've got a question about the heart. Yeah, g'day. Uh, doctors, uh, top of the morning to you. Yeah, do we have a predetermined number of heartbeats? And uh, if we exercise, are we um, bringing death closer quicker? That, that's such a deep and hard question and the answer is both yes and no. It does seem to be that a lot of animals have roughly the same number of heartbeats and from memory, my memory is so bad, I think it's about three billion or trillion, but it's very similar. Now, with regard to humans doing exercise, when you are doing exercise, your heart rate does go higher. But if overall, for the rest of the day, your heart rate is lower once you've got to a certain degree of fitness. So spreading it out over time, if you do exercise that lifts up your heart rate for a couple of years, overall you'll have a fewer number of heartbeats. And this whole thing of do you have a predetermined number, well, not quite, but it is an amazing coincidence that there's such a similarity and people are still arguing about it. But certainly doing exercise does not use up your heartbeats. It actually puts you into a lower heart rate regime. Dr. Carl, you've spoken to us before about how important smells can be in a relationship and how those smells can change even just with the change of medication. Jen from Sydney, you've got a question about this. I do. Hi, doctors. Um, so my <laughs> my uh, question is, um, yeah, about smell and attraction. I was dating a guy um, for a few months who just smelled really good to me. I just couldn't get enough of the way that he smelt. Even just sort of being around him, his smell made me feel really relaxed and kind of silly and, and drunk. Um, and I was wondering what, what made someone smell good, uh, you know, smell good to another person. Um, some of the other guys that I've dated, sort of the opposite has happened. They, they were sort of like the most amazing guys, but they just didn't really have sort of a a scent that I was attracted to and I just kind of couldn't move past it. Mm. Well, with regard to women, which is what you are, on average, if you are on the pill or pregnant, you like the smell of somebody who smells like you. But if you are not taking the contraceptive pill and not pregnant, you tend to like somebody who has the opposite sense of smell. And so a lot of people have had a relationship with somebody and they like them and then they say, oh, well, let's keep going. Um, and they go off the pill and then they wake up the next morning. Well, okay, not the next morning, but they say, who's this bad smelling person? Where did you come from? <laughs> I didn't know who. So a woman's sense of smell is changed by her own hormones or external hormones. Then, of course, you're talking about the other thing is how different it is and, and how you react to that. And there's a whole lot of things there involving your family background, the memory of your first relationship, whether you feel sort of programmed to be happy. Because some people have been hurt a few times and they sort of go into a relationship expecting the worst to happen. And it's kind of the thing called confirmation bias where what you think will happen, you kind of make it come true. You're sort of your own worst enemy. So, Jen, can I ask what these guys have smelt like that you've been really attracted to? Can you even can you even put 
some, like, what do they call <laughs> Some tasting notes, some smelling notes to these men. <laughs> like a fine wine. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm not sure, actually. It's more just kind of a, um, not like a muskiness, but um, just, a, just a really great smell. And it's, it's, um, it's not like a, a, like a, a perfume or a cologne or anything mm. like that. It's just like their own personal um, body odour. It's just great. Can't get out of it. Natural musk, yeah. yeah. Jim, can I ask you, have you noticed <laughs> if there's a difference between if, do, you, if, do you use a contraceptive pill uh, and is, is there a difference between using it and not using it in the sense no, of No, I'm, I'm not on the pill, so, yeah, I, I um, couldn't, couldn't sort of speak to that, but... Um, yeah, no, it, it does seem to be very different on the on the guy though. Though, like, uh, like, like I was saying, like some of them could just be like, you know, the most amazing, attractive guy. But when I smell him, like if I'm not into his smell, it just sort sort of seems to fizzle out a bit. Wow. Ah, well, well, away f- apart from the hot, yeah, really nice thing, there's this sort of background thing that, on average, but not always, a person with a different sense of smell, as you detected, being the female person, will have an different immune system so if you end up making babies the baby will be resistant to what you're resistant to and what the partner is so if you're resistant to diseases abc and the other person xyz the baby hopefully will be resistant to both and will have be a stronger baby awesome so go with the smell is the moral to the story go yeah trust, <laughs> trust your nose Jen. i love that <laughs> Now, I've got Joel here from Lismore. Joel, you've got a question about the appendix. Yes. Uh, so I was wondering, why is it that um, if we get our appendix removed, we can still live pretty much? I've heard you say that our appendix has like an overflow of good bacteria. How does our body deal without that? Mm. That's Joel, you're not wrong. I think we had a question a couple of weeks ago from someone saying, you know, what's the point of the appendix? And Dr. Carl, you yeah. answered that. So, yeah, you're right. How do, we, how do we keep moving and how do we keep, you know, monitoring that bacteria without the appendix, Carl? Well, you, the body, once again, evolution doesn't have to be perfect, just good enough for you to have babies. And if you're in perfect health or just a little bit off, and you're over 25 and therefore over the hill by the definition of evolution, you can still keep on going. And yes, it does have an immune function. Yes, it also has the ability to act as a little off-site storage for gut bacteria. And I was just reading this morning how, you know, this is going to sound weird, they're adding the mother's poo to breast milk to feed the baby. What? Does that sound weird? Yes. Yeah, just a tad, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so just a tad. Thank you very much. I know I'm in Australia. So firstly, when a baby is born by the vaginal pathway, on the way through, the baby picks up all sorts of bacteria and so it tends to have a nice healthy gut bacteria that's relatively similar to its mother's. And then if you're looking at caesarean section, what they tried initially was just feeding the baby secretions from around the vagina gathered at birth to the baby in the breast milk, and the baby went part of the way to having really good gut bacteria early on. We'll get there eventually, but this is just early on. And then when they got a few milligrams of poo from the mother, milligrams, and then scanned it to make sure there weren't bad bacteria like uh, beta hemolytic strep and so forth, and they did this with 17 women and then brought it down to 10 because there were only 10 that had the bacteria that weren't too bad and then put a milligram like really really tiny amount in breast milk within a few weeks the babies had 
regular gut bacteria. Okay, there we are. We've gone into gut bacteria via the appendix, gone yeah. a bit of a diversion, but we are talking about love and relationship and dating. Yeah. <laughs> Poor baby, though. I mean, thinking the baby's, going to, the baby's going, oh, I want to have some nice breast milk, and then there's a little bit of an odd taste. Well, maybe it doesn't notice a taste, but it ends up healthier. I wouldn't do this at home. Have there been issues with people who have gotten their appendix out and, you know, they've had to get it out because it's been hurting or it's gotten infected, but then that's kind of played with their bacteria? Yes, um, there have been cases where um, a person ended up getting some surgery and because they were in pain, they ended up getting some opiates and then that depressed their breathing and their gut activity and then they end up uh, losing a lot of their good bacteria. They had to take antibiotics because they then got a pneumonia. So surgery, then uh, morphine, then depressed breathing, then pneumonia and big fat antibiotics and they ended up almost dying and that was about 15 years ago and they were one of the first people to be brought back to health with a faecal a gut transfusion wow. from their partner and they did that because it was just easy and they lived on the same diet and they weren't all that many medical issues to deal with. Goodness. So that helped recolonise the woman's bacteria and she went from being two-thirds of her body weight and in perpetual diarrhoea for the last six months into having fully formed poos within about a week and then started walking again. Oh, my gosh. Fecal matter is so important. Just incidentally, Joel, do you still have your appendix? No, I had them taken out oh, probably when I was about 16. Yeah, right. Interesting. Well, look, okay. it's such an interesting organ. We've got Georgia from Adelaide here. Dr Georgia, what's your question? Happy Thursday, guys. How are you? Good. How oh, are you doing? happy Thursday, Georgia. Good. <laughs> um, so I was just wondering, um, not that I'm worried about it at all because my partner is quite attractive, <laughs> um, but is it true that when you're when with your partner for a long time, you start to look more like them or is it just seen that way because you start to act the same and pick up each other's traits and stuff. Uh, you're exactly right. You do because you act like them and wait for it, so does your dog if you've got a dog. <laughs> so the dog is uh, wanting approval and it begins to mirror you and so if you're happy, it'll be happy and if you're sad, it'll be sad. And so you end up the mirroring part of the brain being I want to show affinity with you and commitment and long-term relationships beyond, you know, just the sort of the short-term last thing, and you end up looking like the other person. Yes, it's true. Wow. Is, is that good or bad? <laughs> oh, no, it's very good. Jaden is um, he's quite good-looking and he does know it himself. <laughs> Georgia, are you about to go through a glow-up via Jaden? I love this. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Um, he's pretty fabulous, so <laughs> happy. <laughs> but, yes, I'm more than happy to start looking like him, but he's a bit... He's a bit on the ADHD side and I'm pretty full-on person, so together I think it's just um, going to get a bit full-on. <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds like you've got a good match there. It's yeah. it's interesting as well. I feel like we've talked about this, Dr Carl, how, yeah, you can pick up on each other's mannerisms, but that can also translate into the way that you present yourselves physically as well. Yeah, and, and uh, Georgia made a very interesting comment about how she tends to be spontaneous and full-on um, and her partner tends to be a bit uh, sort of more obsessive. And so that actually works out really well. So on one hand, um, I'll go and look at everything uh, about buying a new product like a microwave oven or an induction cooktop and the other person, Mary, will go something like, 
I like the blue colour. <laughs> and, and, and it ends up, my, my daughter Alice ended up buying a, a toaster on the basis of the colour and this was the best toaster we've ever had. So it helps to be able to be a bit flexible. Yes, definitely. Different, bringing different things to the table. We've got Nick here, Dr Nick. What's your question? Hey, dudes. How's it going? Good, Dr. thanks, Nick. mate. Well, thank you. Um, when I was much younger, you used to be able to go into the men's toilet of a pub or a club and find vending machines that would sell pheromones in a package and they claim to make you attractive to the opposite sex. What? Now, I've never heard was, of this. Oh, really? I'm, I'm showing my age, obviously. <laughs> um, so uh, I did an experiment where I bought five of them and for five days went home to my partner at the time and all I noticed from the um, pheromones was that she enjoyed my cooking a lot more. Ooh, okay. I like first. So my question, my, I like that question, you did the experiment. Of course. Um, my question is: Is there any legitimacy to the claim that pseudo pheromones make you attractive to the opposite sex? Um, mostly not. It began in the early 80s when in San Francisco there was a woman uh, who got a bit of a reputation such that whenever any other women would move in and live with her, they would start cycling with her menstrual cycles. Um, and they did the experiment of collecting, they thought it might be coming through pheromones produced by the armpit. The word pheromone is related to hormone, so the moan part means to excite, so a hormone excites your body to make growth hormone or insulin. And the ferro means afar, so it's a chemical that acts like a hormone that's emitted from your body. And they were suspecting that this woman's armpit might be emitting pheromones and they got her to wear a cotton pad in her armpit, drop it off at the laboratory every uh, second day, dip it in alcohol and put it on the upper lip, the chemical in the alcohol, whatever this mysterious essence of armpit pheromone was, they didn't know what it was, put it on the upper lip of volunteers who, of course, were female and not on a pill and not pregnant and not gay because uh, they tend to synchronise periods. And they found it with this initial study that a lot of women started cycling with this woman they'd never met except to get this essence of armpit. The initial study wasn't all that good. There were a few problems in it, but that was okay. Um, and then it followed on to the stage that the stuff that you buy, in fact, is genuine pheromone. It is genuine male pheromone, genuine male sex pheromone, but it was from a pig. So <laughs> if you're going to get anything following you around, it would have been a lust-crazed female pig, not a human. Mm. Excellent. Nick, someone's texted in saying it's a confidence boost placebo and confidence is attractive. Nick, I'm not familiar with this. How did, how did you apply it? Was it in a little vial? Was it on a, a, like a pad that you would rub on your skin? Like a moist towelette sort of setup, you know, yeah, like one right. of those little foil packages with a moist towel. Ah. Oh. Yeah, and it, it smelt quite a lot like washing up liquid. Ooh, okay. Yeah. So dishwasher, dishwasher liquid, maybe that turns people on. Who knows? I like it. Yeah. <laughs> Nikki, thank, thank you so much for taking us back. Bonnie jumping in on the question earlier saying, swear in lesbian relationships we always end up looking slash dressing exactly the same. <laughs> I never thought I'd say this, but Dr. Carl, head banging along to Morat. 
why did it make me start headbanging? I, I felt the need to do it and I kept on doing it. Did you feel the need to do that as well? Yeah, 100%. The power of Morat. She just oh, gives it to her at the end. It's great. Oh, I, I like the delay and the gaps and then suddenly that really raw sound coming through and I'm just rocking to it. Okay, <laughs> to the audience. <laughs> that is her new song, Rockstar. And look, maybe you feel some of the feelings that she had in the midst of that song, you know, falling in love, maybe playing games with your heart. It is dating week, so if you want to know the science behind any of that, 0439757555. But we're also getting your regular questions as well, and we've got one from Dave on the Sunshine Coast. <coughs> Dr Dave, hit us. G'day, Carl. G'day, Lucy. Hey. Dr Dave, um, welcome. Hi. Uh, I've got a question regarding uh, being in and around salt water and why it makes you feel good. The best thing I can come up with is conditioning. You've probably got this whole bunch of memories of previous carefree times where you didn't have to get your phone charged or pay for it or do some work or anything. And you were just a kid and you went to the beach and you could just do anything you wanted and there was a salt. And then you managed to condition yourself over time. Have you had a life of good times at the ocean when you were a kid, Dr Dave? Yeah, definitely. It definitely, um, yeah, that's, that's definitely true. Remember years ago, I read in a, in a surfing magazine, not that they're probably the, the most reliable thing, but they said there was a, um, a spritzing of negatively charged ions can do something to make your, your brain feel good. Um, I know like, personally, like when, when we're out surfing, um, say you duck dive a wave and you come up and there's all the, the bubbles from the, from the wave, which is just broken. And you get this certain smell and um, I just wondered if there was actual a scientific sort of um, yeah, reason behind it. There may well be, but I don't know what it is, but I know that it's very real. The trouble is when you start going into the brain and trying to work out why you're doing it, you end up in a real complicated mess and we don't have a good reason. All I can say is that I'm very glad that you're enjoying it. And are you a longboard or shortboard? Uh, mainly shortboard, yeah, on the sunny coast. Um, yeah, get some good waves. Good for a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> Love that, Dave. It is true, though. I've always, you know, you see those, you know, different quotes and inspirational quotes. I mean, like, salt water cures everything. But recently, after, you know, winter and lockdown, I finally went up the north coast. And as soon as I dived in the water, it was like a weight had just lifted from me and it was just like all my stress had melted away from getting in the salt water. So I definitely feel him on that one. And the salt water does have that you're here now and regardless of whether you have paid your phone bill or not, you're feeling really cold and alive and moving (laughs) and it's right here, right now, 100%. It's in your face. The ocean doesn't recognise bills. I love it. We've got this text that's come through Mm -hmm. from Dr F in Jarangong who didn't want to hop on here and ask it, so I will. Why do women have different types of orgasms and why can't some have the same types that other women do? Well, the first surprising thing is that we've done very little real research on orgasms. Um, It's just not been a part of the psychological uh, literature for a long, long time. Secondly, there's a wonderful podcast by an ex-ABC person called Wendy Zuckerman and about two weeks ago there was an entire episode on orgasms interviewing the people who are doing the latest right now research. Oh, and on average, men 
tend to get orgasms more easily and women more diffi- with greater difficulty. But it also seems that if you take the men out of the event, that the women can have more orgasms if the men are not around. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's been cases of women who have had maybe in their 30s their first orgasm only when they had a dream about being in a shoe shop with nobody else in the shoe shop and an infinite credit card and they woke up to an orgasm. And there's also another weird orgasm which is they call, and I've had this question on Triple J and I didn't have the answer, and the name for it is a corgasm. Have you mm. heard of the corgasm? Mm-hmm. I heard about this recently via Sally and Erica, yes. Right, so the corgasm is when you're doing some sort of exercise and you're, you know, fixing up your core, you're doing your core strength, you might be doing sit-ups or pull-ups, and it is real and the scientists haven't got to researching it yet. So it's definitely real and we don't know why. So now, what exactly is the exact wording of the, our, our text there, now that I've given a bit of background? Why do women have different types of orgasms and why can't some have the same types that other women do? Because we haven't, we, we don't know, we just have not researched it. We do not have a good answer for that. We're in the still in the soft psychological area, which is real and pay, plays a lot, but we still haven't gone down into the mechanical, biochemical, electrical side, which, have, of course, once we've got that, we then have to integrate it back into the psychological side. But they're definitely true. There are so many different types of orgasms and some being better or worse than others. Mm. If you have a question like that and you want to text it in, 0439 we've got Ali here from the Central Coast. Ali, what's your question? Good morning, doctors. So my question is, where does the chemical need for babies come from? I don't like kids, I don't like babies, and then all of a sudden my ovaries feel like they're going to explode when I look at one and the smell of baby wipes and things like that. And what is going on with my brain? Well, the first thing is that the babies have got a dirty trick. What they have is big eyes and a small nose and a really delicious smell. And so if you look at the cartoons of the evil witch, the evil witch has got a big nose and small eyes. And we have been genetically programmed to find that bad. So when you're an adult and you look at a baby, you go, ah, scanning, big eyes, small nose, I'm in love with it. And that way, even if you're not particularly in love with your own baby, there's a program deeper inside you that makes you want to love it. So that's one part of it. And the other one is the old cliche of the biological reproductive clock, which is really unfair in that women have a certain age by which they can generally have babies and it gets harder as you go further on in age, whereas with men they can fertilise babies until their 60s and 70s and beyond. So do you ask the question about age and relationships and family and uh, is there do you think any of that might be involved with this oh a hundred percent i'm wondering does this same thing happen to men you know when they see a baby do that does something in their loins kind of go yes i want a kid <laughs> you know <laughs> 
Well, I, I certainly experienced some of that uh, and enjoyed it. And I was thinking, what the heck has happened to me that I am enjoying a baby and liking the cuddling? And if you're lucky, the baby will sort of cuddle up against you instead of arching its back into a stiff rod and getting away from you and crying. And once they cuddle into you, oh my God, man, they're, they're pulling all, they're pressing all the psychological buttons in your brain. Wow. Because really, we are here to make babies. Um, the human body is just a carrier for the DNA. It's a rather complicated carrier, but the DNA is the real boss and we're just the biological transfer mechanism. <laughs> Thanks for that question, Ali. Thanks, doctors. We've got Thank Hope you, here from Victoria. Hope, what have you got? Good morning, doctors. How are you? Good. Very well, doctor. Hope, welcome. My question is um, in regards to brain orgasms, actually. A brain so, orgasm. Yeah. Um, I was unaware of what they were, but I had experienced them in the past and then I found out about them and now I just want to know more information. So, yeah. Wait, so what is a brain orgasm? Well, it's a tingling sensation that I get in my brain and it's a really, it's an awesome feeling but it only happens sometimes and I can't seem to trigger it myself. Generally, it happens if people are within my spatial zone, I guess I would say. Um, it happened a lot when I was a kid and not so much now as an adult. Hmm, Dr Carl. And is it a orgasm on the same sort of spectrum as the other sort of more physical ex uh, orgasms? Um, yeah, I guess you could say it is. It's comp obviously completely different. But, yeah, it's definitely a good sensation, yes. Hmm. Ah, in this case, we have to go back to the um, king here, the other king, which is Frank Zappa, who said, your main sexual organ is your brain. Right. So all of those other pink, squishy bits and so, so forth, all they do is, under the appropriate signal, uh, conditions, feed signals to the brain. And if you have remembered what those signals were, you could theoretically go, ah... Oh, Got a spare five minutes, there's nothing good on TV uh, or on my internet, I'm having a boring time. And you could theoretically replay those signals that go to your brain to set off an orgasm and then have an orgasm completely ignoring any touching or stimulation of the external physical pinky bits. So ah. I'm guessing that the brain orgasm, and this is what Wendy Zuckerman talked about in her Science V podcast. It's a really deep podcast. And at the back, they've got about 68 references. And once you start reading on it, because I did homework for this, you suddenly find we don't know nothing. Mm. So mm. I'm guessing that what you're getting is you've conditioned yourself into it and made... What's wrong with a bit of pleasure? Like I remember a song that went, too much fun, too much fun. There's a whole lot of things that I ain't never done. I ain't never had too much fun. And no. fun is good, you know, it makes you happy. Um, yeah. Why? I hope oh, someone's man. texted in saying I get the same feeling when getting my hair cut. And, ah. yeah. And Cameron. And I always get it, oh, sorry, on one side of my brain only. I can only feel it on one side. Oh, oh my gosh. Okay, so yeah. we, we're now entering into the field of pleasure, <laughs> which is hedonism, and then there's a whole other condition called anhedonia, which is not having pleasure, and there's all sorts of subsets of that, and then one tiny subset of that is sexual anhedonia, where the person is otherwise completely average, but they just simply cannot get pleasure 
from sex. And that's a whole complicated psychological thing there. It's in DSM-5, but let's not go there. Why are you having it on one side of your body? Don't know. Josh from Ballarat also texting in saying, oh, my God, I've had the same thing. I used to get it more when I was a kid too. Now not so much and always when I'm in the vicinity of someone else. Thank you for bringing this to the table, Hope. You're welcome. Thanks, doctors. And shout out to Cameron from Elwood who's saying making it real awkward in the work van. (laughs) (laughs) And Anthony from Brisbane, you've got a dating question. Talk to us. Oh, g'day, guys. Yeah, cheers for taking my question, by the way. Um, Yeah, is dating game going to change due to globalisation? You know, as in, like, we we don't need to have kids anymore. Like, why, why would you date then? Ah, with regard to having children. Yeah, like Japan apparently has a you know an aging population, but it's actually a better thing for the overall world. Um, if we were going down the pathway that we were going down before, we would have ended up with the world population stabling at around nine and a half, ten and a half million billion, around twenty fifty, and then with education increasing around the world, especially when the women get educated, then that drives the population down because there's not that much of a need to have um, extra babies. Um, Secondly, there's been a massive change with regard to social media and I would recommend watching the Netflix documentary The Social Dilemma. And around 2009-2010, we ended up having the first easily accessible internet for everybody. You could do it on your phone by yourself anywhere you were as opposed to on a computer and then suddenly there were no parents saying, hey, you can't watch this on TV. And so in America we've found that as we're pretty sure that this is a result of it with the middle school in 2010 being the first one to come through with social media, we've found firstly a tripling of the self-harm rate among female teenagers, 10 to 14, a tripling of the suicide rate, female teenagers, age 10 to 14, and various sorts of body dysmorphia of I don't look as good as they do on the phone. And so we're seeing a massive increase in teenagers trying to get surgery. And also, it's early days to say, but it does look like the social media has caused and is causing a social change in that we're finding the people coming through in that first generation are more risk-averse, tend not to have driver's licence, all other other factors involved, and have, wait for it, fewer dates. Now, this is a complicated thing that's going on. And remember, correlation is not causation. The fact that there's a correlation doesn't mean that one causes the other. For example, there's a terrific correlation between the daily consumption of margarine over the whole USA and the divorce rate in the state of Maine. Is there a correlation? Yes. Are they related? No. So that, that question you've raised, we are in the beginning of this social media revolution and we're going to see what it does. We're seeing something, but we're not too sure if that's really caused by the social media revolution or not. We don't know. Any time will tell, hey? Mm. And, you know, I think we've seen studies as well that think teens are having much less sex or or not having sex for the first time until a lot, until they're older in age as well. I I couldn't cite where where I've read that or where that's come from, but I think that definitely came out in the last year. And correct, that's what they did say in that documentary, The Social Dilemma. But on the other hand, I haven't read it in a peer-reviewed journal, so that's a soft finding, not a hard finding. We've got Zial here from Maitland. Zial, what's your question? So I started transitioning this year medically on testosterone and 
I've never actually sort of found out how testosterone affects the voice box. I know it makes your voice deeper, but what is the actual, like, what does it do to do that? Ah, um, if you think about a guitar string, a thin oh. guitar string will vibrate at a high pitch, but a big fat guitar string with a larger diameter will vibrate at a lower pitch. And the effect of the testosterone upon the larynx is that it acts upon the testosterone receptors, which are there in both men and women, but women have only got a small amount of testosterone on average. Men have got more. And so it makes the vocal cords increase in size and mass. Think of the guitar string. The more massive, the heavier the guitar string, the lower the frequency that it vibrates at. So that tends to bring the voice frequency down. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Thanks for your question, Zial. And we've got Susie here. Dr. Susie, I like this question. Um, hi. Um, I wanted to find out what's going on when you get the connection with your, like, first partner because uh, we got together towards the end of high school but then drifted apart. And for a few years there was a few random online hookups but... It never really stuck. So when I contacted my ex after about four years, we immediately fell back into a relationship and it has a really, really strong um, like sexual component to it. Wow. Ah. So there, there's a few factors going on there. The first one is that you have spent a long time with this person and you know them fairly well and you're pretty well at the where what you see is what you get and you know what's going on. And so after some years of sort of dallying, thinking about it, maybe yes, you get together and blow me down, it's really good. That's one thing. The other one is the whole media, TV, et cetera, et cetera, movies, the first person is not the right one. You know, you've got to keep go out there uh, and find the right one. And so you go out looking for the right one and you think, actually, I already spent about four years just checking out this person and they were the right one. And then when you get back to them, then you realise that, in fact, they were the right one for you. In the fact that you had the right degree of compatibility, the same number of similarities and differences to make you a functioning couple. And you also have the history of having worked through a whole lot of things together. In some cases, people think that the relationship should just go by itself and you shouldn't have to work at it. You shouldn't have to give up stuff yourself. Uh, and in fact, you do. So you're not the first one I've heard. I've heard of quite a few cases of where people went out with somebody, uh, that was their first person, then drifted apart. And then when they came back, said, why did I ever leave you in the first place? And I'm putting it down to social pressure. Oh, good to know that's normal. Susie, lucky you, honestly. Lucky you. Yeah. <laughs> so, Dr. Carl, you've been jumping into some of our dating week questions. And just in this last minute here, what advice would you give to someone who's maybe going through a breakup right now or feeling a little bit disheartened from the dating process? Well, I have been dumped a few times and the first time it was just terrible. And then the second and third times, I figured I've already been dumped. Um, it's not going to change. I have to distract myself. Why don't I start doing a bit of exercise and running and swimming and stuff? And I'm still, my heart is broken. But so I diverted myself into exercise. And so there I was heartbroken, but at least I was fit and heartbroken. And so you can either be heartbroken or fit and heartbroken. So I went for that one and it was good diversion therapy for me. Build the rig and, you know, maybe you can do a boxing class, get some of that anger out as well. It all works. 
it did work for me. Um, and then later I came across them again and we're, we're, we're fine. I, I didn't carry a residual anger or hostility to them because it's nice to get on with people. Thanks for listening to another episode of Science with Dr. Carl. You can check out more Dating Week content over on the Triple J website and also the darker side of dating apps. Triple J Hacks Investigation is over on their podcast. I'm Lucy Smith. I'll catch you next week.